I grew up, I want to pray like Stephanie. I don't know about y'all, but in the last couple of months, I can call Stephanie, and, and we've prayed together, and I just am so blessed. So, Stephanie, thank you for leading us in prayer this morning and for engaging with us in different ways as we hybrid this thing together. Uh, I'm just so grateful for our church. We're so blessed, and we make it through, don't we? No matter what uh, jumps in our way, uh, we make it through. Uh, I want to take some of you back a little bit. Um, now, I just want to put a little asterisk on this. Uh, in, in 1964, um, I was negative 12 years old, just so we're, we're clear on the timeline here. Um, but there was something in 1964 that swept the, the world, especially America and Britain, and that was Beatlemania. Um, uh, some of you may remember Be Beatlemania. In fact, I searched through pictures seeing if I could see some of you uh, that, that were possibly in there. Shirley was one of those people. I, I see people uh, pointing out over there. I think Jessica was too, I'm pretty sure. So, Beatlemania though, right? I mean, there was something about John Paul Ringo that everybody loved. Now, does anybody know the name of the fourth Beatle? Probably the smartest guy. George, was that his name? Okay, nobody ever remembers George. Just John Paul and Ringo, right? But there was a picture here of, of, of these people, and you can kind of see generationally. You see a little bit older generation just sitting there, right? You know, I, I figure they're the Baptists. I'm just, I'm just kidding, right? So, uh, uh, then, then you know, behind in there, you've got the, the charismatics, which I love them anyway. And then past that, you just got youth who just do crazy stuff anyway, right? But Beatlemania was this thing that, that wrapped everybody up. They loved the Beatles. They loved the music of the Beatles. They loved the celebration of the Beatles. They loved all the, I mean, just some of the interviews that you would see. I watched a, a 60 Minutes interview that, that went back and looked at all those things. Just how crazy. I mean, these girls would pass out. You know, uh, there was an interview where, where uh, uh, Ringo was, was saying that they were told that, uh, by the police department in New York City, do not go to the window and wave at the people down there because it will create mass hysteria and we'll have a riot on our hands. And if you do so, here's how we're going to fix that. We're just going to walk away and not protect you. And, and it's like, boy, that's a pretty, pretty good tactic, right? But have you ever loved something so much like the Beatles that causes you to act this way? Have you ever just loved something so much it causes you to act this way? Listen, here's what I want you to do for me this morning. Uh, I'd love for you here that are with us live and those of you online, if there's something like that, you can just put yes or no. There is something like that. But would you just log in to our Facebook page, say hello to our friends that are online, and just connect with them for a moment. And I want to ask this question here. Is there anything that you would do to make you ask this way? No specifics, please, because, you know, we don't want to put things out there on the Internet. And then for the rest of you who aren't getting online or doing that right now, just talk amongst yourselves for a second and say, is there anything that I just love so much that I would just go full Beatlemania on? Anything at all in your world. So go ahead and talk amongst yourselves. It's okay. You can talk in church today. I'm enjoying the laughter. Just I don't know what's going on, but some of you are laughing. But it's an accusatory laughter. That's what makes me really, really, really laugh because you're like accusing the other, especially some of you spouses like, oh, you say you don't, but I know you do. Let me tell you what they are. Let me list the things that you Beatlemania about, right? Uh, my wife, I actually heard her say it a minute ago, and I agree with this. I don't nap well on Sundays. And when I do actually nap on a Sunday, it's because I'm just dog tired. And it just takes a lot for me. And sometimes I get to that I'm so tired I can't nap stage. But when I do nap, I sleep hard. And I just remember a couple of years ago waking up from one of the few Sunday afternoon naps that I took to her hollering and screaming because the Texans had scored a touchdown. I'm thinking, are you kidding me? It's this woman you gave me, God. I can just, I totally understand what Adam said. 
sometimes we just do crazy things for the things that we love the most, right? And we get all excited about stuff, and we, we put our affections and our time and our energy into stuff that, that mean a lot to us, may not mean as much to other people, but, but, but we do that. And that's exactly what we're going to talk about this morning. Have you ever loved something you know, so much you acted that way? Have you ever loved somebody in a way that maybe they didn't love you the same? Or have you ever just loved somebody that didn't love you back? I think heartbreak is one of those things that every human being can totally understand. They can totally get what it is to feel like I'm pouring all my life and my emotions and my love and my energy into someone, and I, it's just not coming back that way. And friends, this morning we're going to start a series in the book of Malachi. And Malachi is the last book in the, in the Old Testament, but this book of Malachi speaks a lot to the people of God who were not loving him the way that he loved them. In fact, God loved them so much they didn't love him back. And they were challenged by that. And they went back and forth in these, these, these arguments with God almost. They would, they would post their protest and God would respond. And I just want to warn you, sometimes when you post your protest to God, don't be surprised if he answers back. I, I think sometimes we think, well, God doesn't hear me or God doesn't respond back to me. When he does, it's profound. And you ought to listen to that. And by the way, I believe God answers every single one of our protests. We just don't pay attention enough or don't like the answer. And he does so. So if you have your Bible with me this morning, I want you to turn with me to the book of Malachi. It's, uh, it's about uh, three-fifths in your Bible. If you find a blank page in your Bible, you've at, you're at the end of Malachi because that's the separation between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And that blank page represents 400 years of silence uh, before we see John the Baptist and Jesus come on in the New Testament. So in Malachi chapter 1, we're going to look at the first five verses this morning. And it says this. It says, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Now, that word oracle is often translated burden. The burden of the word of the Lord was given to this man named Malachi, who was a prophet to the people, to the nation of Israel, who had just come out of exile. And it says that God gave him a prophetic word, and he told him, go and tell my people whom I have chosen what I am about to say to you. And Malachi carried this as a burden, and I, I get it, because not all of it was good news. And sometimes when we have bad news to, 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 to address someone's behavior, it's a burden to carry that. It says, the oracle of the word of the Lord, the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. And he says, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Let me give you a little background about what's going on. and I'm going to show you something here in a second. But, but the, this oracle, this burden, this word from the Lord, from God's prophet to God's people is during a time by which they've been through the exile. Now, we've already seen Ezra and Nehemiah have, have gone back and rebuilt the temple and rebuilt Jerusalem. And now about 100 years after that happened, the people had had enough time to stop worshiping God. That's exactly what's happening here. And so God sends a messenger, which is what Malachi's name actually means, this messenger. And he, and he brings this message to the people saying, for a hundred years now, you've lived under the sovereignty of the Lord God, but you've not loved him the way that you need to. And you've chosen not to worship him the way that you are. And so now it's my burden to bring to you the word of the Lord. And you ask of him, God, if you really loved us, then why are we living the way we're living? Why are these bad things happening to us? Why is such difficulty of times upon us? If you really loved us, 
And the Lord responds back to him, I loved you and I hated Esau. Now that word hated there actually doesn't mean hatred like we might understand it. It actually means choice. I have chosen you over Esau. We're going to get into that in just a second to better explain that. But he says, I've loved you, but you've not loved me back. And I've loved you so much, I chose you over your brother. Now the Edomites... Those of Esau, whenever you see those two names, Esau and Edom, they're of the same people. And they were known to have built their fortress in the southern part of Israel into the, to the rocks and the caves and the canyons. And they were fortified in such a way that, that you could only get to them by coming at them head on. You couldn't come over the back of the mountains and get to them. And so their strength, they declared, was in the, the mountains and the crags and, and, and the jackals uh, that, they, that they would uh, build in the wicked country, as it says. And God wiped them out. Whenever he wiped out Judah and exiled them into Babylon and to Persia, whenever he wiped them out, he wiped out the Edomites too. Obadiah is a great place to go and look at that because Obadiah speaks of this hatred between Edom and, and Israel, which goes back a long ways of two brothers who fought, Jacob and Esau. And so he says they may build. Now notice he didn't say they may rebuild. He says they may build, but I'm going to tear it down. Because they think they're hot stuff, but trust me, I'm bigger than this. But you, my chosen people, Jacob, the people of Israel, my chosen people, you ask how I, God, have loved you because you're not getting what you want, because things aren't going your way, because you're not in a position or place that you thought you should be, because you had an expectation that didn't get met. And so therefore, because your expectation of, of how the creator of the universe who spoke everything into existence is not coming true, I must therefore not love you. It's terrible logic. But we all participate in that all the time, right? If God really loved me, he wouldn't let this thing happen. If God really loved me, he'd provide this way. If God really loved me, my kids would be better, right? If God really loved me, things wouldn't cost so much. If God really loved me, COVID wouldn't be running all over the globe. If God really loved me, we wouldn't have this air conditioning problem in the school that we rent that only goes off at 1030. It's quiet the whole rest of the time. But if God really loved us, these things wouldn't happen. God must love us. It's quiet now. Amen. I prayed earlier, Lord, if you can't get rid of that sound, can you at least, at least fix my heart? If you really love me, <laughs> you would. You ever do that? I mean, we do that in our own relationships, right? We're going to see family, some of us this week. And boy, I, I remember when my kids were younger, how they used to butter up grandparents. They still do it a little bit, too. How they would, you know, Grandma, if you really love me. And grandparents, you actually fuel this too, okay? I'm just going to be honest. I'm in that weird stage. I don't have any grandkids, but I'm coming, right? But, but you, you kind of remind your grandchildren, if you really love grandma, you wouldn't do this or you wouldn't do that or you'd go here or do whatever. Okay, we all know what I'm talking about. Some of the grandpas are looking at grandmas right now going, yep, that's you. Okay. But this is the conversation that, that, that is launched between Malachi and, and the children of Israel who have been moved back into their promised land that God gave them. And they're complaining, okay, so 100 years we've been here. We got our city back, we got our temple back, but we're just, we haven't got everything back. Particularly our pride, our name, our fame, our riches, our wealth, our prominence, our status in the region. People don't fear us the way generations talked about how they used to fear us. And so, God, if you really loved us, what's the deal? So let me show you how we got here, okay? I'm going to put this slide up here on the top. 
and, and I hope you can kind of see this. This is a long history of how we got here. God made a promise to Abraham, and he said, Abraham, you're going to be the father of many nations, and you're going to have a son, and his name would be Isaac, and Isaac is the son of the promise. Now, now Abraham actually had another son named Ishmael, but he didn't do so according to what God's plan was, and so that kind of divided a little bit, and God blessed the Ishmaelites, and he also blessed Isaac. Now, Isaac went on, and he married a woman, and he had a set of twins named Jacob and Esau. And from the very beginning, Jacob and Esau fought, even in the womb. And Jacob actually was the second born, which means Esau should have gotten all of the birthright. And since he should have gotten all of the birthright, it means he should have been the child of the inheritance. But one day he got hungry, and he sold his birthright, tricked out of it by his brother Jacob, whose name, by the way, means deceiver. Now, Jacob, the deceiver, went on to have 12 sons, and one of those sons was Joseph. And Joseph was his favored son, and it was the first son of his favorite wife after he'd already had ten other sons. And Joseph's brothers hated him because he was kind of a mouthy kid, and he knew a whole lot, and his father favored him. And so what did they do? They did what every brother would do to somebody they didn't like. They sold him into slavery. And so they sold him into slavery, and he ends up in Egypt. And he goes to Egypt, and what does he do? He gets thrown into prison. And what does God do with that? He elevates him to Potiphar's house and all the way up to second in command of over Egypt. And over Egypt, he, he reclaims his brothers and his family. He gets to meet Benjamin, his youngest brothers. And then after that, the scripture tells us in Exodus chapter 1 that Pharaoh's ruled over Exodus and none of them had remembered Joseph. 400 years passed and now the, the Hebrews, the Israelite children, the children of Jacob, uh, now outnumbers the Egyptians in their own country. And so they, they put taskmasters on them and they make them build more bricks they do all these things, and they, they're crying out, God, if you really love us, you would get us out of this situation. Didn't you make a promise to Jacob, our father, and to Isaac, his father, and to Abraham, his father, that we would be free and we'd be in this promised land? This is not the promised land. We're, we're slaves building bricks by Egyptian taskmasters. And God says, you know what, I do love you. In fact, he even says in Deuteronomy chapter 7, he says that with an outstretched arm, I will redeem my people and he's telling them, I'm going to come and get you. I'm going to get you out of here. And he sends this guy named Moses. And Moses comes along and he says, let my people go. You know the song, right? And, and he says, let my people go. And he says, get them out of here. And so they get out of Egypt and then they're on their way out of there. And, and what does Moses do? With outstretched arms, he parts the Red Sea. You see God's prophecy coming through? And God said, I'll be your God and you'll be my people. And they're like, okay, this sounds great. Let's all go out in the wilderness. And they get out there about 30 days. And they're like, did you bring us out here just to die? What's the deal? The Egyptians are on our tail. And God causes the Red Sea to crash and kill them all, right? And then they complain a little bit more. We don't have any meat. We're eating all this manna. And he goes, I'll give you so much meat, it'll come out of your nostrils. Sounds great, doesn't it? If God really loved us, he would give us steak, right? I mean, I, I, I'm a firm believer of that. That's a fair request of God. So they get out in the wilderness, and they wander around for a while, and, they, and then Moses does what supposed to do. He sends in some spies, one of them being a guy named Joshua, another one named Caleb. They come back, and they say, we can take them. They're in this promised land, this land of giants. We can take them. And everybody else says, no, we can't do it. And God says, great, I hope you enjoyed your walking. Walk around a little bit more. And after all that generation dies off, Joshua takes these children of Israel across the Jordan River into the promised land. They occupy the land. They're called a nation for the very first time. And in that nation, they begin to, to kill off all of the pagans who are worshiping other gods. They're instructed to take down all the high places where they're worshiping false gods, and they don't do it. And they start to divide up the land, and they live pretty good for a while. And then they start looking around at all the other kingdoms around there, and they say something just profoundly stupid. 
We want a king like everybody else. We want to be just like every other nation out there. God, you're just, you're not good enough. And, 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 and we don't like this set-apartness because we want to be like everybody else. Now, I know that's crazy when you think about that because we don't behave that way now. God, I don't want to be like everybody else. I want to be better than everybody else. I, I don't want what everybody else has. I want more than what everybody else has. I, I want better than what everybody else has. Am I the only one who thinks that way? <laughs> and sure enough, they did, and God says, let me warn you. I'm going to send you a king, and his name's going to be Saul. And by the way, Saul's name means asked for. Be careful what you ask for. He said, I'm going to send you a king, his name is Saul, and he's going to enslave your children. He's going to overtax you. He's going to take every freedom you thought you have from you. And this, I want a king business, you're not going to like. In fact, if you read that whole story, what you'll see is that God actually refers to Saul first as a prince, not as a king, because he's the only king you'll ever need. And he's trying to remind them of this. And Saul goes and he does something silly, and he makes a sacrifice he shouldn't be making. And then God causes an evil spirit to rest upon Saul, and God anoints another one named David, who's not in his family line. And David becomes the king of Israel, a united Israel. And he's not the firstborn son. He's way down the list there. He becomes the king of Israel. He does some pretty silly things, but he's a man after God's own heart. And God says and makes a promise to David. He says, See, I, my, my love for you will never depart your family line, and Messiah will come from you. The line of Judah will come from you, David. And David says, thank you, God. I know I've made some really bad decisions. And David has a son named Solomon, and Solomon does something amazing when God says, you can have anything you want. He goes, what do you want? I want wisdom. He goes, you got it, Solomon. I'm going to give that to you. And then Solomon goes out and marries 600 women. Just because God gave him wisdom doesn't mean he used it, Right? kind of like our brains some days and Solomon does this and next thing you know the kingdom divides north and south and you see Judah and a little bit of Benjamin to the south and you see all the other 10 tribes of Israel to the north and God says enough they start worshiping pagan gods they actually put high places up they were supposed to destroy they just build them higher they actually put false gods inside the temple and God says enough so he sends these armies to come down and wipe them out and he takes out the northern kingdom first and then Judah's sitting back there thinking oh we're fine we're good because we're God's chosen people God made a promise to David we're not going to worship God but we're just going to remember the promise right we got a contract we got a covenant a deal here they don't do it God takes them exiles them out the temple gets burned down the 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 the, the temple is is desecrated and rubble and God sends back Ezra and Ezra rebuilds the temple first and he begins to read the the word of the law, the Old Testament as we call it, and all the people stand when he begins to read it, and they weep for 12 straight hours. He reads God's promises, just like I just recalled back to you. God said, you remember Jacob and Esau? I chose Jacob. You say that I hate you because I'm not doing the things. You say that I don't love you because you don't have the prosperity and the fame and everything else that you have. This is how we got here. Because you failed to realize that I loved you even before you were even born. I chose you. I chose you to be my, my elected people, to represent me to all the rest of the world because I want to reconcile mankind back to me. And I want to do so by using you, Israel, which, by the way, is Jacob's changed name after he wrestled with God one night. Israel. Oh, you make such claims against God because he doesn't perform the way you want him to. He doesn't do the things that he wants you to do. And here they are, a hundred years after they've gotten their temple back, they've gotten their land back, they've got everything back, and they're still not worshiping God, and they're still trying to figure out, is this all we got? Doesn't it get any better than this? 
how did we get here? And Malachi is going to be the last prophet that God sends. And he has this terrible burden to call out all these things that they're going to argue with God about. And then things are going to go quiet for 400 years. And then a new messenger is going to come named John the Baptist. And John the Baptist will soon say, there is one who comes after me that is greater than me, whose shoes I'm not fit to untie. The king is coming. The king, the real king is coming. And when we look for a king and we look for royalty, we don't get into Beatlemania the way that we probably should. And the people rejoiced when Jesus rode into town. They were excited about that because they thought he was going to be this military leader that he was going to restore back. Even his own disciples said, uh, Lord, is, is now the time that Israel's going to be restored? Is your kingdom going to restore? And he goes, the time and place is not for you to know or me either. It doesn't really matter if it is or not. If you're not worshiping me as the creator of God, it doesn't really matter. God, we've got a problem with this. And, and this is exactly what's going on with the Israelites at their time, is that they're, they're fighting with God back and forth. They're arguing with God's prophet. They're, they're, they're not declaring their love for Israel, even though God said, even before you were an inkling of a thought, I chose you. And you ask if I love you? Isn't it good when people choose to love you? Isn't it even better when people choose to love you after they know you? Isn't it good to know that someone chooses to love you even though they know exactly what you're going to do? Isn't it good to know that someone chooses to love you even though you're not going to love them back? That was the case God was trying to make. God chose you a long time ago, and so for you to question my love for you, go back and look at your history. I kept my promise to Abraham. You're back in the promised land. Things are going like I said they would. I've held up my end of this covenant bargain. You guys need to hold up your end of the bargain. One of those is you shall have no other gods before me. God of fame, God of power, God of wealth, God of prosperity. Anytime we put those things above the one true God, we miss out on what he's trying to do in our lives and how much he loves us. And we're missing out on what his future plan is. We can't even see that. We can't see the forest for the trees. We don't worry about what God may be setting up to doing in the future because right now in the present, I'm unhappy with God. Is that okay to say? Have you ever said that yourself? Have you ever been in a place where you said, I just don't think God loves me because he is not meeting my expectations? I got news for you. If God met everybody's expectations then we would really question whether God loves us or not. Because sometimes my expectations is not that the person in front of me would turn off their left blinker, but that they would just disappear. Not that people would be better drivers, but there would be less bad drivers on the road, period. I don't know about you, but I would like to get paid more and work less. Isn't that a good expectation to have? And if God really loved me, if I was his chosen person, or his chosen people, wouldn't he therefore do that? By the way, I just want to put this little caveat in there. God gave Adam a job before he gave him a wife. I think God's got something to say about work. So for all you single people out there, make sure that whoever you marry, they got a job first, all right? God's got an expectation of us too, so it's not good enough just for us to have an expectation. We need to have one of, of him, but it needs to be in the right place. And here's the thing, if we don't know the one true God and we don't know the history of the God who has fulfilled all of his promises and the God who is setting us up after thousands of years of history as I just walked through very quickly, 
that he continues on his path because what he is saying is that from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3, when sin entered in the world and death followed with it, he says, okay, I know this happened, but I've got a plan, and I'm going to fix this. And the way I'm going to fix this is I'm going to bring my one and only son into this world. He's going to be perfect, sinless, and spotless, and he's going to die for the salvation of mankind. He's going to wipe away all the sins of mankind. And no matter what you do or how bad you do it or how much you turn your back on me, when you ask questions of God, do you love me or not, just remember I'm going to send my one and only son to die for you, whether you, you believe me or not. Now, I think God's in the right prerogative and the right perspective to be able to just hold that over us. But he doesn't. Isn't that good to know? Because he could very easily say, you know what, I've kind of had enough of your lip today. I've kind of had enough of you. And so, Richard, uh, Lawrence Richard says this. He's one of my favorite commentators. And he actually said this about the people of Malachi. He says, when we lose sight of our destiny... When we fail to grasp this reality of growth, our motivation to live for God begins to die. Let that soak in for just a second. This is what happened to the people of Judah in Malachi's day. They had looked inward, lost sight of the destiny ahead, and abandoned hope for personal growth and change. I don't know about you, but when I began to question God about how much he loves me or what he can or, can or hasn't done for me, you know what that's all about? me it's not about who god is when i begin to talk about what i'm not getting when i go inward on the things that i don't like or how i'm uncomfortable or or i don't understand the promises of god because they don't fit into my current agenda that has nothing to do with god it doesn't take away his holiness it doesn't take away his sovereignty it doesn't take away his love for us it doesn't take away the fact that he chose us all it means is that i'm paying more attention to me and not enough on him John the Baptist will be this great messenger, and he said something great about Jesus when his disciples asked, does it bother you that more people are following him than me? And he goes, I must decrease and he must increase. That doesn't bother me at all. In fact, I would love to be unknown if that means Jesus. Isn't that great? The king is coming. And if we're looking inwardly for this coming king, we're going to miss him. And God's selected chosen people, the, the, he secured and made sure made it through the exile and got back into the promised land they're missing the reality that a king is coming and they've tried earthly kings and that didn't work out so much and they divided the kingdom and that didn't work out so much and so i don't know maybe we ought to just trust in the one true king the one who is worthy to sit upon the throne and open up the scrolls and write our names in the lamb's book of life let's trust him the king is coming and we need malachi chapter one it's the reality that we need to learn to love God. It may not sound like a, a tangible thing, and maybe you don't like the, the wording or even the theology of it for a moment, but I think sometimes we have to learn to love God in such a way. I mean, sometimes, let's face it, some of you have been married to love them, but you just don't want to be around them some days. Thanksgiving's going to be a great time for that, right? And, and there are mornings, I'm sure, with great fervent love for them because I don't want to. Love is a choice, by the way. And we need to understand that choice, that God made the choice to love us. And we need to choose to love him. And so as we get ready for the coming king, as we look forward to Christmas that's coming in a few days, we need to prepare ourselves to love the coming king. 
because he's going to be different than what our expectations are. He's going to do things that we don't want him to do. He's want him to do. And our love for him should not be contingent upon the things that he does for us. It should be contingent upon the thing that he already has done for us. Learn to love the coming king. So how do we do that? Stop that. How do we learn to love him? I think, first of all, what we do is we respond to his love for us. I think so many people, especially those that are searching for relationships, they're searching for love and understanding. They're, they're looking for love in all the wrong places, as the old country song. I think people sometimes, they fail to, to miss, to respond to God's love for us already. We don't talk God into He starts there. He starts there. He desires to love us. And because of his desire to love us is, is such a way, he has to deal with our sinful attitudes and our behaviors and the nature of us, sin. And that's actually very loving, even though we don't like to agree with that. And so Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5 says, Even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. What that, what that verse says is a lot of things, actually, and we won't unpack all the theology. But what he says is that not only has he predetermined that he's going to love us, he knows who's going to choose that love and who's going to respond to that. And in the process of that, he's going to adopt us, which means once we're adopted, we have full rights of the family. And we can never be taken out of that. Adoption was an amazing thing in the New Testament because it gave full rights. You could actually disown a biological child, but you could not disown an adopted child. Still do. Amen. Believe it or not, we're children in need of adoption from a father who loves us and we don't deserve it. And he says, I'm willing to do so. I want to do so. As my creation, I want you to choose me. I chose you before the foundations of the world. God created us. His, his, his most magnificent of creations is us. That's why we're so different. But all in need of salvation through Jesus Christ. And so the first thing we can do to get ready for the king is respond to his love for us. Just respond to his love for us. You've probably all seen the movies or maybe been in relationships before where one person says, I love you, and the other person responds, thank you. I love you. Thank you. I love you. I love cheeseburgers. You know, they completely change the context. It's not the same sort of love. And God says, I love you so much. I'm going to send my one and only son. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. People in Malachi's day said, God, we'll love you if. We'll love you when. God just said, I love you. There is no if or when or how. He just said, I love you. We can learn to love the king by just responding to his love. That means that he takes the first step. He's the first one to say, I love you. Isn't that good? Secondly, we can seek God's approval only. And this is the problem that the people of Malachi's day were having. They were seeking approval in all sorts of different ways. They were setting up a circumstantial system that said that, that we kind of rank order how much God loves us based upon our prosperity. We have a, vic, a, a vicious, wicked thing running through our planet right now called the prosperity gospel. And it basically just says this, that if you're, you're rich and wealthy and your needs are provided for, it must be because you're in, the, in good presence with God. I got news for you. That's an outright lie. Your economic status, the fullness of your belly, the persecution you do or do not has nothing to do with God's love. That is unchanging. And, and to say that, that, that you're only in good graces with God if you're prosperous is an outright lie, and it is not the gospel. I even hate that it's packaged together called the prosperity gospel. 
It's called a wealth and, and health lie, to be honest with you. You're only, you're only healthy because you're in good standing with God, but when you get sick, it's because you're not. No, no, we get sick because sin entered this world and death followed with it, and our bodies are, are, are finite in this world, and people get sick. Good, godly, holy people get sick, and they die, and they spend eternity with Jesus because they know him. And so if you've got any of that prosperity gospel in you, and all of us do, by the way, unfortunately, because we sometimes think, and if, if you're a social media person, I always love if you'll like and share this with 100 people, money will come your way. Listen, I can circumvent that. Just send me money and I'll be happy. Seek God's approval only. Luke chapter 12, Jesus said this, and it's a familiar passage. It's just maybe a little different translation. It says, and do not seek what you are to eat or what you are to drink, nor be worried for all the nations of the world seek. All humanity seeks these things, the basic human things. They seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. He's not aware of what your needs are, but instead seek his kingdom, and all these things will be added unto you. Would you stop trying to please yourself, stop trying to get God to please your desires, and let him take care of your needs, and seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all things will be added unto you. When we seek God's approval first and only, we're learning to love him. Because when he approves not just of my behavior, but he approves of me, he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. He sees what I do in my heart before he sees it in my hands. And he loves me unconditionally, regardless of the decision I make. And he wants to put me back in the right place. The third thing I think we can do to learn to love the king is to trust his ways are better than ours. And I think this is a prideful thing for each and every one of us to, to understand is that we wait till we get to a position to where we, 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 we finally need God. We get ourselves to a place to go, you know what, I don't want to bother God with these things. I'll wait till things get here. DEFCON 1 is kind of where I like to, to bring God into the conversation, not at, at 5. Is that, is that right? Did I get that right? I wait until it's an emergency before I ask for help. I got news for you. Anything on this world that doesn't deal with eternity is inconsequential. But it doesn't mean that God looks at them and goes, nah, it's not worth my time. Because the circumstance and the situation is inconsequential with a human being associated with it is not. Isaiah 55, 89, one of the greatest books in all the Bible, one of the most difficult to read, just to be perfectly honest with you. He says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God says, listen, would you please stop trying to figure this out on your own, because every single time you have consistently, and I'll give you that, consistently been wrong. Seek my ways first, and my righteousness, and the kingdom will be added unto you. Realize that my ways are better than your ways. Start there. Don't get there. Start there. Because that's what so many of us do. We eventually get there, hopefully. Some of us don't, actually. And we don't realize that God's ways are better than our ways, and if we would just trust that, it would save us a whole lot of heartache and pain and suffering and unnecessarily uh, foolish things in our lives. I mean, many of you are pretty handy, and you do some of your own home improvement projects. But at what age, some of you who are a little bit older, at what age did you finally say, you know what, when I was 30, I'd have done this. But now that I'm so old, I'm going to call this guy. Because sometimes the fix is way more expensive. Oh, yeah, I got it working. You don't want to be near the light bulb whenever, you know, 
TV turns on. Every time Amanda turns on the microwave, something on the other side of the house, no, hey, listen, call somebody, right? This is what God is saying. Listen, don't try to fix this yourself because you'll never get it figured out by yourself. Trust my ways are better than your ways. You can learn to love me by responding to my love for you. You can learn to love me by seeking my approval only. You can learn to love me by trusting my ways are better than your ways, and you can learn to love me by obeying my commandments. This is perhaps one of the most challenging verses in the Bible for me. And I want you to just think about it for a second. This was Jesus talking to his disciples. He's also speaking to the, to the, to the Pharisees at the time. And he says simply, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. God has the right to put the qualifier of if you love me on that sentence. We do not. He has the right to say to us, if you love me, you would demonstrate your love for me. And stop giving me lip service. And stop just talking a big game. Because the king is coming. And if you love him, you will obey his commandments. Because that's what you do when the king shows up. You, you submit to his authority. You respect his wisdom. You respect who put him in place. And you trust him. And he responds to us by providing for our every need. He gives us all that we possibly could imagine. He loves us unconditionally. He's steering us down the right path because collectively we can't make a good decision collectively. But if we've got a king who can lead us to the promised land and give us all that we need and provide and protect and secure life for us, then that's what we really need. And if we're looking for that in our own selves, if we're looking for that in a government structure, if we're looking for that in an earthly king, we will fall short every single time. And Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. It started with just one. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they did so. They couldn't figure that, that one out. And then it went, to, it went to 613. Actually, it went to 10. Ten commandments. And 613. And after that, Jesus said, let me just boil these down to two. Love God and love people. If you love me, if you love me, if you love me. The people of Malachi today, they're arguing with the prophet, God's spokesperson, the messenger who's saying, the king is coming. And, and you're worried and upset about what's going on in your world, but the king is coming, and when he gets here, you don't want him to find you like this. Because if he does, he's going to get himself some new servants. You know not when the master comes, but when he does, he wants to find you serving him and serving others. We don't know what that time is. It's a challenging verse for me in John chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments and so if we filter that back through realizing you know what the king is coming and i'm not going to wait to get my life in order when he gets here i'm going to start getting my life in order now but i'm not going to do it by my own strength and my own desires and my own plans i'm going to go back and respond to his love for me and my response to love for him is worship i'm going to worship him with a glad heart i'm going to give up myself i'm going to think less of me and more of him i'm going to decrease he's going to increase in my life I'm going to trust him. I'm going to seek his approval, only not the world's approval. I'm going, to, I'm, going to, I'm going to go after righteousness first. And so when the king is here and he's in my, when I'm in the presence of him, I'm going to love him. Now just think for a second. They were told thousands of years ahead of the birth of Jesus that the king is coming, the king is coming, the king is coming. And what did they do? They got discouraged every time he didn't show up. When things didn't work out the way they wanted him to. Even today, non-Messianic Jews do not declare Jesus as the Son of God, the Savior of all mankind. They're still waiting for the King to show up because he didn't show up the way they wanted him to. 
the way they thought he should. They're still striving. They're still struggling. They're still not responding to God's love for them when he said, I chose you even before the foundations of the earth. You ask how I love you, I chose you. I chose you to be the spokesperson. Now, we're not Israelites. We're not from the tribe of Judah. But we are, in fact, grafted into the family of God because of what Jesus did on the cross for us. So we're not hopeless, we're hopeful. But the king is still coming for us. And when he gets here, we want to worship him. I want to close by reading a familiar passage. So I told you earlier that when he, whenever they took the slaves out of Egypt, God said with an outstretched hand, I will, I will redeem my people. Hosea says something very similar to that as well. Since when Israel was a child, I, I, I loved him. And, and out of Egypt, I called my son. And now when Jesus was born, Herod was out trying to kill all the babies. And, a, and, a, and an angel spoke to Joseph and he says, get to Egypt. This is what it says in Matthew chapter 2, verse 19. It says, But when, when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared and a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. For that was a declaration to all of Israel and mankind. The king is coming. And God is rescuing him out of Egypt, and he's going to set him on the throne in Israel. And he wants to set him on the throne of your heart and mine. The king is coming, friends. We're going to celebrate his birth in a few weeks, but we need to learn to love him. And that's going to require a lot on our part. Thanksgiving's a good time to start that because we have a lot to be thankful for because of what he's done for us. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we love you. We thank you. We bless you, Lord. We thank you that the King Jesus is coming. The only one worthy of opening the scrolls and sitting on the throne. And so, Father, I pray that Jesus would be the king of our hearts, that we would respond to him properly, that we would, we would learn to love him. And in doing so, Father, we would exercise our rights and our, our emotions and our, our hearts just for the celebration of this coming king so that others might see this because we're placed where we are, Father, to be the examples for the rest of mankind. Lord, we're excited about the birth of Jesus. And while it might be a little strange for us to celebrate that, knowing that that child was born for the express purpose of dying on a cross, 